Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week, we discuss strategies and tactics to help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. The B2B world has changed and you need to put your customers at the heart of your marketing. We'll cover how you can use our framework, the five Bs, to create a brand that customers are ready to buy from, love and advocate for. We'll get insights from successful people in the industry and cover the latest trends to keep you on the cutting edge of the B2B world. If you're interested in B2B marketing strategies and tactics that work, then this podcast is for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook. Listeners, Kevin, today we are talking about the principles of scarcity and unity and how you can leverage it in your marketing to influence the decisions of your dream customers. We're continuing our mini series on mind tricks in marketing to try and get more customers. Again, Kev, it's a little bit clickbaity. We don't want to manipulate these people, but hey, there's an understanding using science that people respond in certain ways to certain cues. And as marketers, it helps us to be aware of them. And I'm sure listeners, you're sick of me recapping at the beginning of every episode what this podcast is all about. But for our newer listeners just joining us, here's a quick one. So this podcast is all about our step-by-step evergreen framework called the five Bs. It's all about demand generation and B2B marketing and how you can build your own system to really leverage all the information out there in a systematic way. The five Bs are be ready, be helpful, be seen, be better and be the best. We strongly encourage you to go back and listen from the beginning of this podcast if you haven't done so already to really understand what they all mean and what the structure of the framework all is. But as George said, we're in the fifth B of the framework be the best. We're talking about neuroscience hacks and it fits perfectly in this season because all we're talking about this season is the things that will help you and your marketing stay at the forefront of your industry. 
And Kev, as a quick introduction to, I guess, the topics today that we're talking about, we said scarcity and unity. Look, that feeling that you get when you're in a rush to buy something because there's limited stock or limited amounts available, that urge to grab a deal because it's ending soon, that is the scarcity principle. A lot of people call it FOMO, that fear of missing out. It's a huge big time driver of human behavior. And then in the second half of this podcast, we're going to deal with that principle of unity. Now, what is unity? It's why we are more likely to take action or be persuaded by people that we have shared experiences and stories with. It's why so many brands today stand with social causes, making people feel like they're part of a bigger movement and enhancing brand loyalty. Now, Again, we're going to go through each of these principles. We're going to show you more evidence for why they work. We're going to tell you more about them. And then we're going to, of course, give you practical tips on how you can actually use these principles in your marketing today to get more dream customers to take the actions that you want. These are both, again, principles from Robert Caldini's book, Influence, which is really about how marketers can use behavioral psychology to get the outcomes that they want from humans. As we said, we're doing a little mini-series on this at the B2B Playbook, so make sure you catch our last three episodes on the topic. Okay, let's get back to scarcity. That's what we're kicking off with. What the hell is scarcity? As I said, it's that feeling that you get when you rush to buy something when there's limited stock or you're trying to grab a deal because it's ending soon. That is the scarcity principle at play. And Caldini, in his book Influence, when he's talking about this principle, he tells us that we tend to value things more when they are scarce. I don't know about you, Kevin, but I've definitely felt this when I'm on booking.com or any online travel agent's website before and I'm looking for a hotel and it's there telling me in that red writing, only one room left at this price and you feel that panic. My God, Kevin, that is scarcity at play. It sure is, George. I'm sure that's why they do it. There's so many alerts you get on those booking sites that tell you how many people are looking at this property, how many rooms are left, how many people have booked in the last 30 minutes, a one hour, whatever it might be, just to try and encourage you to get there. And even with hotels directly, when you're booking directly with them, they have a limited number of rewards nights, a limited number of nights at a certain price before it goes to the next tier. All these things are trying to create that scarcity to try and create a bit of FOMO to get you to get you to take that final step to pay for the product. Kev, as I was really thinking about this principle, it cast my mind back to when I first bought tickets to the Rugby World Cup, which is coming up next month and it's in France. And I bought them two years ago at, in the very first pre-release sale. We caught wind that it was going on. And it was scheduled to release at 2 a.m. our time. Myself and six or seven other friends, we all agreed to stay up till 2 a.m. And we would wait in the virtual line. It was like we were buying tickets to a bloody Taylor Swift concert, Kevin. We stayed on the <laughs> phone for two hours just to see who got in first. And finally at 4 a.m., you know, a couple of us managed to get through the virtual queue. We bought the tickets and we spent a lot of money. Like we did, they still cost a lot. It was cheaper. It was cheaper because it was the first round, but it just didn't seem to matter as much. We felt lucky. It felt like a privilege to get these tickets. Now, since then, Kevin, they had three more rounds of releases just <laughs> like that. Cause of course they weren't releasing every single ticket to be bought like that. They just had a very limited release. So they sold, went out of stock, sold, went out of stock, but 
they're selling physical seats. They know exactly how many seats that they have. And then, Kevin, they had a general public release as well. So there were actually plenty of opportunities to buy them. But because they limited it to just this super early release, just a handful at a time, there was a line. All of a sudden, price sensitivity was taken away. I then had this sense of, wow, I did it. I got it. I beat all these other people. And now I have these tickets that so many other people want. And the reality is, Kev, there were plenty of opportunities to buy those tickets in the future. (laughs) That's maybe a less scrupulous way to do it. But certainly there are cases where scarcity does really help. As you said there, the example of Taylor Swift tickets, we were recently for going to a concert for the Lumineers. It was a very similar process of finding tickets, different releases, price points and things like that to really get people across the line to make that purchase on the day very quickly. And even with something that's more of a bigger ticket item, things like purchasing cars, for example, you really need to go through that process, but then you get to the dealer and they're like, what would it take for you to get this deal across the line today because we've only got three of these cars in stock and then it'll take six months before the next shipment comes in. A lot of this stuff is there to drive that scarcity principle because they probably know and you should probably know too that there's another dealership in the next suburb that probably has (laughs) a similar allotment of cars that you can go buy next week, the week after. You don't need to really be rushing into that sale. But as you said, George, that's the scarcity principle at at work. The limited or perceived limitations of stock really makes us value that product, that particular product, a lot more than our potential alternatives of buying maybe the same product just at a different location, a slightly later date, what have you. All right, let's get into some real world examples of scarcity in action. And look, Of course, toy makers know all about the scarcity principle. Every big brand knows about this and is leveraging it. And we'll just go into how the toy industry is using it. So as we all know, there's holiday season toy crazes, Beanie Babies, Tickle Me Elmo, whatever it is. Kev, I haven't been a child in quite a long time, so I don't know exactly what it is and I don't have kids yet. So I'll know what they are. I'll know what they are at some point. But anyway, we all know that there's holiday season toy crazes and... Caldini points out in his book that creating a limited supply can absolutely skyrocket demand. So it's not just about the toy, it's the status, the story, the drama of the acquisition, just like how I felt when buying tickets to the Rugby World Cup. And toy makers know all this. So every holiday season, there's a must-have toy that child wants, and every parent is desperate to buy it. Now, companies sometimes deliberately produce fewer toys than the anticipated demand so that stores run out and parents become desperate. And then when those toys are restocked post-holiday season, parents then buy them eagerly, even if that holiday surprise factor is gone. By artificially creating a condition of scarcity, really limiting the stock, companies can ramp up demand and ensure sales even after peak buying period has passed. Kev, I think it's something that Apple do with their iPhone and all their devices pretty regularly. Yeah, it's getting into that tricky territory, but certainly is a tactic that is well and truly tried and tested and seems to be working very well. Another great example of this at play in a more relevant setting for myself is possibly what's called the cookie jar experiment. So people always want what they don't have. Caldini cited a study that where cookies from a half empty jar were rated more attractive 
than those from a full jar, that really shows that principle, that simply by the fact that there's less available, it creates more desire. In that particular setup, a group of researchers did this test with one jar with 10 cookies, the other containing only two. Participants were asked to rate the attractiveness of those cookies. After some time, the conditions would then change. The jar, which originally had 10 cookies, now only had two, and the other one that started with two were then filled up with 10. And the findings were obviously that the participants consistently rated the cookies in a scarcer jar to be more attractive and desirable, even though it's exactly the same cookies, exactly the same jars. And basically, the only thing that's changed was how many were there within each jar between the different phases of the experiment. The takeaway, obviously, is that it wasn't the actual scarcity of the cookies that made them more important, but the change in their availability. And it really showcases that we often want things more when we notice them becoming scarcer. So over time, as those scarcity levels change, it's not just about the number two, it's more about the change in that scarcity as well. And that is something that I've experienced personally. I was at a bakery recently and looking at the shelves of different types of pastries, we wanted the one that had only two left on the tray. <laughs> we wanted that one because all the other ones seemed to have five, six, ten available, and then there was only two of this one left, so we grabbed the last two. Went up to the counter and we saw there was another tray of these pastries. So they obviously weren't running short, they just hadn't restocked it, consciously or subconsciously, on their part. But the impact was that we wanted these pastries more than the other pastries in the bakery, just because there was less of them available. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. Limiting supply, it works. There you go. Kev, one more example is the beef shortage that happened in the US. And this was a real world scenario where the US Department of Agriculture announced that there would be a shortage of beef. And despite the fact that there was still tons of beef available, consumers rushed to the stores, buying in larger quantities and driving up the prices massively. So just here, the hint of scarcity or the anticipated future of scarcity can really drive behavior to increase demand, even if the actual scarcity hasn't occurred yet. My God, we saw this in COVID with the madness around toilet paper here, Kev. When we thought that we were going to run out of toilet paper, anything that we said we might run out of, people went insane and bought incredible quantities of the stuff. God, sometimes it's not the best, is it, Kev? I know it can certainly go the wrong way. And I think maybe one way that traditionally hasn't been the best at times is the exclusive clubs that get set up. So clubs with exclusive memberships or waiting lists that seems super appealing to a lot of us with particular interest based on what they offer or the topic of that particular club. 
But it's not really always about the amenities they offer, is it? That mere fact that they limit access seems to make them more desirable. And that can have discriminating results that probably is undesirable and probably not a great thing. So it can work both ways for sure. That's it. The more we can't get it, the more we want it. All right, Kev, let's look at why does scarcity even work? And one principle or one reason it works is loss aversion. Loss aversion really means, look, humans are generally more motivated by the thought of losing something than by the thought of gaining something of equivalent value. This is cognitive bias. It's called loss aversion, and it plays a big role in the scarcity principles. So when something is scarce, we perceive a potential loss, making us want it even more. A couple of other concepts that's tied into why scarcity works along with loss aversion is perceived value and freedom threat. So perceived value means that with scarcity and implies that an item or opportunity is of higher demand and lower supply, and that naturally elevates our perceived value of that item. It's very closely tied to loss aversion, just not loss, but just the perceived value of the thing. We often equate rarity to value. Think diamonds, gemstones, these kind of things. And then the concept of freedom threat, as Caldini suggests, is scarcity really threatens our freedom to have something it limits our options it leads to that heightened desire to possess it it's really rooted in psychological reactance when people feel that something becomes limited they really desire more because they don't want their freedom to choose it later on to be restricted so they want to get that thing before it runs out all right, Kev, let's jump into some ways that our listeners can use scarcity in their B2B marketing. Now, one is limited early access offers. Look, this is a strategy that so many brands, HubSpot as an example, they've used and they use all the time. It's really limiting early access to new tools and features. And by doing that, they create this sense of exclusivity and urgency that helps in getting immediate feedback from their most loyal customers, but it also creates buzz and anticipation in the market for their new offerings. You know, other examples that people use in a similar vein is saying, hey, for the first 20 or 100 people to sign up to this particular feature or this product, get access to it at this price. Or if you sign up and you're the first 20 people to do it, you get this particular feature. It's a strategy that can really work, for, particularly for brands, Kev, that are earlier on in their journey. It's not something that needs to be reserved for a HubSpot. You can offer more features, more benefits for the first X number of people. It's certainly a great way to start building that community around your brand who become true evangelists. Another great one that people often use and that you can start to employ in your B2B marketing is limited time discounts. So just another guise of their scarcity principle in action strategy here is something like salesforce a leading cloud-based crm software provider occasionally offers limited time discounts on their subscription plans or exclusive bundled offers for new customers of a few different services at a lower discounted price and the outcome naturally is that these limited time offers create that urgency that if you sit on this all those fence sitters who really trying to decide whether they want to purchase something it really nudges them in the direction of making that decision quickly because that perceived value that limited time offer will be gone and it's similar to the concept of using limited slots and availability is there limited slots to a particular webinar or training program that they can access and that's something that we in fact employ with our cohort 
of the B2B incubator. Part of the reason, the main reason is to actually limit the number of people going through at the same time so we can dedicate and offer enough value to each person going through the program so we can ensure that we're offering the best service and we're not spread too thin and the material is getting across properly and we can service each individual in the cohort the relevant amount. But also it is obviously a tool that can help us create a bit of scarcity and hopefully that will help people get across the line as well with the incubator. Yeah, our scarcity is a real thing. Kevin and I haven't made it up. It is so we can provide so much value to every person who goes through it. But just think about how can you introduce this principle of limitation into your business? As Kev said, is it a limited number of webinar slots or seats for your webinar that are available? Is there a limited amount of time in which people can sign up for that webinar? Are there exclusive perks for the first 10 people who sign up for your webinar? How can you think about using this principle of scarcity in your everyday thing? We know that you might not have access over and control decisions around how the product is made, but you can definitely control how it's marketed. So just think about how you can do that. Okay, Kev, now I want to jump into the principle of unity. Now, what the hell is the unity principle? Look, it's one of the less talked about, but still incredibly powerful concepts from Caldini's book, Influence. In essence, unity really goes beyond merely liking or similarity, which were other principles that we discussed in previous episodes. It's actually about shared identity. So think about those moments where you instantly bond with someone because you discover that they're from your hometown or went to the same college or you had some really kind of niche shared experience. That's unity. And Caldini argues that it's an absolute game changer in persuasion. In a hypothetical scenario, if you're at a business conference hundreds of miles away from home, it's the first day, you're feeling a bit lost in the sea of unfamiliar faces. If during lunch someone sits at someone at your table mentions that they're from the same small town as you, suddenly the two of you will be a lot likely to be chatting away, more closely bonded, sharing memories of the local legendary pizzeria or a particular traffic light that everyone seems to have trouble at and whatnot. And before you know it, you formed a closer bond with that person. You might be even more inclined to check out the business, maybe offer them a special deal in return. Um, as well just because of that shared background that's not just likability which is a principle we talked about in a previous episode it's more of a profound sense of belonging of uh, unity of being together uh, and with the same cause or same shared background all right kev let's look into some real hard evidence of this stuff working so again it's not just fluffy hocus pocus but they're principles that really work so you know we're not just wasting your time right here and the first one is a great study that Caldini cites where participants were significantly more likely to assist someone if they believed that they shared a birthday with them. It sounds super trivial, but here's the clincher. These participants were even more likely to help if they thought that they shared a similar fingerprint pattern. Now, the idea here is that they shared identity, even something as arbitrary as fingerprints, and if we do that, then it makes us feel like we're part of the same family. But it doesn't stop there, Kev. Caldini then further delves into the power of familial language. He discusses how politicians like JFK used really inclusive terms like we and our, 
which really removed that boundary between them, the government, and the public. And that famous line, of course, comes to mind where JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Now, that is the principle of unity in action in its most classic sense, Kev. Boy, they could probably do with a little bit of unity over in the States these days, but let's not get into politics. Another great example of the unity principle in action is the pool of home teams. So anyone with a sports allegiance will get this instantly. So Caldini talks about how people are inexplicably drawn to support teams from just their hometown, just based on the fact that they're from that particular town. They might not even enjoy the sport so much. They don't have a following to that team. Maybe they're just not that invested in sports in general. But the thrill of the fact that their hometown team is playing is enough to trigger that shared identity and unity principle. And when your hometown team wins, it's not that they won, it's we won. And this sentiment might sound a bit baffling from outsiders because you haven't really played, you haven't done anything to contribute to the performance of that team. But that is, in fact, uh, the unity principle at play. You're within that circle of shared identity and it's actually perfectly logical. So Caldini references experiments to prove this point where he indicates that participants were shown to be more cooperative, trusting, and generous to individuals who simply wore the jersey of a sports team they supported. This powerful bond, often formed merely based on team colors or logos, really underscores that profound influence of unity. Kev, a bit more evidence for unity that Caldini goes into is how it plays into cultural and ethical bonds. He shows that there's this inherent trustworthiness that we have when we see someone from our own community, be it a similar language, a similar upbringing, or common cultural practices. These kind of unique things that we share really bind us in a really strong way. And it actually shows that we're more likely to be persuaded or influenced by someone who gets where we're coming from. And to be honest, Kev, there's something I guess I immediately feel with fellow Greek Australians, or even people who just have really long last names with a lot of vowels, I just find that I can connect with them quite easily. We have so many shared experiences, and because we've had those shared experiences, because if you have a long name, long last name with a lot of vowels in it, you've probably experienced really similar things with my, that I had with my yaya or my nonna or whoever it is. We've had these really consistent niche things that only we get, and that common language just paves the way for us to, I don't know, influence each other, to to share stories, to say, hey, I think this is working, this isn't. It's an interesting principle, Kev. Certainly is, George, and I couldn't agree with you more. Certainly feel the same from my cultural ties and into that principle of unity. Certainly see that around us every day. George, how can B2B marketers use this principle of unity? The first one, a very easy one, is just to use storytelling with shared origins. Have you ever gone through a company's origin story and thought, hey, that sounds a lot like my journey or their dream customers seem to have gone on a very similar journey to myself? That's no accident. The companies are probably intentionally weaving narratives that highlight the struggles and experiences that you've gone through that really resonate with their target audience. 
So the message then becomes clear that we're just like you or we support people who are just like you and we understand you. And this is why tech startups frequently emphasize their garage beginnings. It accentuates their humble origins and relatability and how their journey really started in a similar way to what you're going through. And hopefully that sense of unity that comes from that story will help you get across a line with interacting with them further. And Kev, we did a whole episode on how marketers can craft their story to reflect exactly this. And this is why you do it. It's got to be relatable. People have to follow you along that hero's journey. And in order to do that, you've got to show that you're human first up. So make sure you check out that episode. Another way that you can use Unity is employee advocacy. So, you know, who better to vouch for a company than its own employees? When employees share their positive experiences or show off their knowledge, their subject matter expertise, it really adds a layer of trustworthiness. We're going beyond just being a faceless corporation, but we're actually showing, hey, there are real people here with whom other potential employees or clients might share some commonalities. It's so much easier to start a conversation with someone where you know a little bit about them, where you can put a face to a name when they share an experience that you relate to. If you like fishing and John from Microsoft goes fishing and he's a subject matter expert in a business line of Microsoft that you're thinking of employing, then guess what? That's a great thing to talk about to show that you have some kind of common shared identity. Yeah, these employee advocacy programs are definitely worth looking into for a lot of businesses for that very reason. Something else that we see a lot is highlighting shared values in CSR. So today, there's a lot of businesses that aren't just about profit. They're about values and ethics and social contributions and societal contributions that are really important to their dream customers and society at large. And by showcasing those CSR initiatives to al that align with the values of the target audience, businesses can further foster that sense of shared purpose and unity. And when a company stands for a cause that you're passionate about, that connection runs a bit deeper than mere business transactions and you're more likely to choose them over a similar product. Just another way to differentiate and use that principle of unity. But of course, as a warning, it really should be things that is important to your business and is in fact shared with your target audience. It should be truthful and it should be helpful in some way. Don't fake it till you make it. These things can't be faked and it's really shown through recently with a lot of negative press and a lot of scrutiny around greenwashing efforts where companies try and talk about those environmental efforts that they're doing and labeling themselves as environmentally conscious businesses when really a lot of their practices are still a bit questionable environmentally. So make sure that whenever you do highlight these shared values in CSR, that they are in fact a true value for your business. And if not, just work towards that first. That's it. Please do it the right way. Kev, the last practical tip we're going to give around how to use Unity in your business is user communities and forums. Tech companies, especially those that are in B2B, they often nurture active user communities, so people who are super users of your platforms, and giving them a place to share, learn, and grow together about how to get the most out of that platform, or even how to deal with kind of related issues to whatever it is that platform is trying to solve those forums then go beyond just troubleshooting and become shared experiences and hacks and stories. And they foster this sense of belonging and they really turn 
users into loyal advocates. As we said, a lot of B2B organizations try and implement this tactic. Few do it well. Kev, probably the only super niche forum that I'm a part of, and this is outside of a B2B example, is there's a rugby union blog that I follow called The Raw. And look, rugby union is very popular globally, but its audience is hugely shrinking in Australia. And they've had consistent quality journalism on it for a really long time. And the comment section immediately after a blog is posted are just flooded. And they're all familiar names and faces and people actually really spend time to think about what they're posting before they do it. And the internet used to be like this, but now everyone else seems to have moved away from blogs and they're more on Discord and Slack groups and other places for communities. And that's the one kind of niche place that I still go to where I'm more passive, admittedly, but there's this very strong, thriving community of people who love rugby union and their familiar faces. And it's, it brings me back. I constantly browse through the comments whenever I go back to their website. It's great to have those senses of community and to feel that unity in the digital age for sure. Mine's Ozbargain. So not all dead and gone, George. We all have our interests <laughs> and all have our little forums and pockets on the internet where we get a little bit weird with our shared interests. So that's great to see. And hopefully that's the same with you listeners. All right, key takeaways for this episode. First, the principle of scarcity means that people are inherently valuing things more when they're rare or in short supply. And that makes those limited time offers and exclusive deals very powerful marketing tactics. If you... The second principle that we talked about was unity. So that's shared identities like hometowns or cultural backgrounds or similar sense of journeys or similar journeys that you've been on. Those things really create a sense of belonging and trust and amplify the persuasiveness and the persuasive power of interactions with those that you share that unity with. Both those principles tap into some very deep-seated human emotions and instincts, and when used ethically and correctly, they can foster genuine connections and influence decision-making in B2B marketing and will really help you leverage your dream customer audience to the journey that you want to go on. Very good. Thank you, Kevin. Listeners, you can find links to everything that we discussed in the show notes. And as always, Kevin and I are so grateful that every week, more and more marketers tune in every Monday morning to the B2B Playbook. If we can ask one thing, it would be to please pass the show onto someone who you think would get value from it. Also, check us out on YouTube and subscribe. It's a huge help to us and we would really appreciate it. Take care. See you next week. Thank you, George. Thank you, listeners. See you all next week. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there to get the latest news, tips, and resources from our playbook. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer.